Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we're bringing you a special message that Dr. Aaron Rock recently presented at our Lift the Curse conference, and his message is entitled Abortion, God's Law, and Culture. In this message, he explains how we got to where we are in our culture, where abortion is widely accepted and widely practiced, and the foundational importance of a worldview. Let's get started. So I've entitled my message or my lecture, uh, Abortion, God's Law, and Culture, How Did We Get Here? So I'm, in, I'm attempting to sort of lay a groundwork, a framework, a theological and philosophical groundwork for why we're having this conversation today. Those of you that are alive know that we are fighting as a Christian church and Christian community many different cultural wars today. And those cultural wars include everything from a radical sex agenda to infanticide to medically assisted suicide to statism, totalitarianism, and the list just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. And we're fighting all of these things. And frankly, I have found the last 18 months both exhausting and more than distracting. There's, I I would rather be talking about this than petitioning and debating the government to keep our churches open or to keep them, you know, out of the ministry and worship of the church. So it has been a bit of a distraction, I must admit. But I, I think it's important for us to, um, as much as we have to react to and fight against the issues of our day, let's not make the mistake of allowing the state and the culture to determine our agenda. So today we're talking about an important issue, which was important before the pandemic. It's important in the pandemic. It'll be important if this pandemic ever ends. And the reason why we want to talk about abortion is because it really is, without question, the greatest evil of our day. It's the greatest evil of our day. It is it is systemic in our culture today. And one of the reasons why we fight for liberty here at churches, we're fighting for liberty, we're fighting for charter rights, and we'll hear our naysayers say, well, that's kind of selfish. Like, who cares about rights and charter freedoms and all that kind of stuff? Well, we're not fighting for rights and charter freedoms just so that we can live more comfortable lives. We're fighting for rights and charter freedoms and the ability to speak freely, in large part, so that we can deal with issues like this. Because if the government censors us or closes us down, it's kind of hard to have these kind of conversations. So we're fighting for liberty and freedom in order to open doors for us to continue to talk about these kinds of issues. Now, I also want to say at the beginning that many of the things that you're going to hear today are probably going to burden you. You're going to feel heavy-hearted at times, but I don't want you to go away feeling discouraged. I don't want you to do that. Don't go away feeling discouraged. If you read the scriptures, you know, you can read a chapter and there's a problem, and the next chapter later it's resolved. But if you're not reading it carefully, there might be a hundred years between one chapter and the next. So we're fighting against injustice. We're fighting these cultural wars. And sometimes these wars take decades, if not centuries, to ultimately win. But in the end, either in this world or the next, we will win. So don't be discouraged. Be burdened. Be convicted. But don't be discouraged and dismayed and just sort of, oh, I'm just going to give up. I'm going to go live on an iceberg you know, until it melts, global warming, in the Arctic. 
Uh, stick it out, fight the fight, and um, God will honor your effort. So again, my lecture is entitled Abortion, God's Law, and Culture. How did we get here? I want to start by addressing what we might call echo chambers, the problem of echo chambers in the abortion debate. Now, you're here today presumably because you are appalled that abortion still takes place in the country of Canada. I'm assuming unless you're a, um, what do you call those people that sneak into churches? Devils. Oh, yes, devils. Unless you're here to, to cause us problems, I'm assuming you're here because when you think about abortion, you're like, this is, this is wrong. This is disgusting. And, and I want to in some way fight against that. We're here because we know abortion is wrong. Why? Because we know that to take the life of an innocent child is contrary. It's a violation of the authority that God has given to us. We simply don't have the authority to do it. We're here because we're appalled at the idea of the taking of an innocent human life. We're here today because we know abortion is unnecessary. We're here today because we know abortion is grotesque. The methods are grotesque. The outcome is grotesque. The rationale is grotesque. And we're here today because it is contrary to Christian scripture. And it is also, by the way, contrary to Christian tradition. So we're all here today. So when, when, when I talk this way, I'm, I'm expecting I'm going to see some heads nodding and I'm going to hear some amens and preach it, brothers, and I'm going to stir your heart. And together we have righteous anger against such matters. And together we pray that the Lord would move sovereignly and end this atrocity. And some might even come and go feeling a bit of despair. But we're here today because we believe that God can stir hearts and that uh, speaking the truth, by the way, we got here by lies, we get out by truth. Speaking the truth over time changes people as God sovereignly works. So when we're having this converse, these conversations, it, it might seem like this is a bit of a pep rally. We're like, we're all going to go, yeah, we all agree. We all agree. We all agree. We're all on the same page. We're all on the same page. Do you agree? Are you as disgusted as I am? And then you leave and it's like, now what? Now what? Well, a few things just to kind of encourage your hearts. The first being, our job is to preach the truth, to teach the truth. And God is the one that ultimately brings the harvest. So I'm not the Holy Spirit. You're not the Holy Spirit. You can't change the hearts of men. But you are God's tool in his toolbox to be used for his purposes. So we're going to preach the truth. And we're going to confront abortion, whether we see it increase or decrease in our culture. We're just going to keep doing it. We're never going to give up. And we'll let God reap the harvest. But there's good news. We, we know of incident after incident after incident of where just one person here and one person there and one person there and one person there chose life over death. So even if we spent the whole day together and only one life was rescued, would that not be worth it? It'd be worth it. And it's happening all over the place. So even if we only persuade one, that's more than zero. Also because we believe that there are some immediate things we can do to help and that God uses the faithful efforts of his people to accomplish great things for his honor and for his glory. 
So there is a danger, of course, of becoming an echo chamber and just sort of rallying the troops, but not necessarily having an influence and impact on culture. And what I want to do is, yeah, I want to rally the troops and I want to encourage you, but I also want to help you to understand that you can actually have an influence and impact on culture. Not there's some practical things you can do. Obviously, you want to preach on this subject in your church or churches, your small group. You want to discuss this with your children at an early age so they're they're equipped for it when their time comes to fight the fight. We it would be wise to continue to wage the social media wars as we have opportunities. Uh, Laura Clausen is going to probably introduce you to some of her efforts in that regard and those those do have a positive effect. I'm a fan of picketing, I'm a fan of petitioning, I'm a fan of letter writing, I'm a fan of voting for candidates most likely to incrementally move the, our agenda forward in politics. I'm a fan of all of that. We're going to keep preaching the gospel because if we just moralize culture but no one gets saved, well, what's the point? We're going to keep doing that. We're going to persuade. We're going to debate. We're going to do all of that. We're going to do all of that. But I want to talk today about worldviews. And this is, we're just going to talk in a very practical sort of horizontal way. We know that God can do what God's going to do. Okay. We know that, you know, we're reformed enough to know that God's going to do what God's going to do. God is sovereign. That's an immutable attribute of God. But humanly speaking, humanly speaking, as we think about the cultural wars and how to respond to the issues of our world, I would like to propose to you that we will never win this war nor will we ever win the other cultural wars that we're facing until we dismantle and replace the secular, humanistic, world and life view that dominates our culture with a biblically, we could also say creational, I'll describe that word later, creationally robust one. So this is a worldview fight, folks. It's not just, hey man, abortion's gross. Do you agree with it? Yeah, I kind of, I don't think it's a big deal. Well, let's have a debate about it. If we're going to fight this fight effectively, because we're in the minority, we need to, uh, we need to attack and dismantle the dominant Western secular humanistic worldview that is causing all of these problems in culture. Now, if you don't think that's important, do a little study. Examine the cultures in our world. You can just Google this. You can, you can look at world maps. What are the cultures in the world where abortion is most prominent? Well, very simply, communist countries, because the dominant world in life view is what? Atheism. So you're just here, you're a blip, and then you're gone. So what does it really matter? If, you're, if your life inside my uterus, I'm speaking on behalf of a woman, of course, is inconvenient, then I can just remove it. And really, what does it matter? Because we just came from the scum and we sort of evolved and when we die, we die. So we see abortion very prominent in communist countries and even in former communist countries. It's very prominent in Russia. It's very prominent in Romania, for example, even though there's a huge Orthodox community there. And it is very prominent in Western countries. Now, you know the word Western is a fairly modern description of like Europe and North America. We used to call it Christendom. Now it's called the West because we don't want Christ being talked about. 
Western countries flourished historically because they were founded and grounded on God's law and word. They're no longer, so we just call it the West. And the dominant worldview in the West is secular humanism. Secular humanism. Very high abortion rates. And in fact, in many secular humanistic countries, we actually invest in abortion. You know that, right? We invest in it. We budget for it. Not only do we spend money on it, but we invest in abortion. So a couple statistics. In Canada, it's a little hard to come by the exact numbers, but in Canada, we spend at least 100 million of your dollars annually aborting babies. It costs about a thousand bucks to abort a child in Canada. Justin Trudeau, over the next 10 years, from 2019 till about 2030, 31, is going to invest $7.1 billion in African countries promoting and supporting abortion. That's your tax dollars at work. Now, you're going to hear a message later on today about the role of the gospel of Jesus Christ in combating lies, the, the raw gospel of Jesus Christ. But worldviews also matter. So let's talk about what a worldview is. It's in, in modern apologetics, cultural theology, we tend to call it a world and life view, right? So if you're talking worldviews, you're about 10 years out of date. We call it a world and life view. It's just a little more effective term. And a world and life view is essentially a, a collection of beliefs about the world around you. Very simple, a world and a life view. And world and life views try to answer questions like, who am I? How did I get here? What's my purpose? And where am I going? That's a world and life view, very simply. This is just very basic stuff. What's the meaning of life? Am I valuable? And the way you answer those questions is going to affect the way you live your life. Now, there's many, many questions that we can discuss surrounding the question of a biblical world and life view. But I want to address three that are especially relevant to the abortion debate. And the reason why I want to discuss this is because the more we understand people, the better we're going to be able to talk to them. The more we understand the lies and the falsehoods that they believe, the easier it's going to be for us to speak truth to the lies and to to dismantle them. And it's also important for us to have a biblically robust world and life view because God has called us to shape culture. That's part of what it means to be a steward. We steward his creation as his co-regents. So we shape culture, we reshape culture. And we do that incrementally. I'm big into incrementalism. I used to be more of an idealist. Now I'm an incrementalist. I'd like the world to be fixed now. But I know it's a long-term process. So incrementally, 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 we move our agenda, God's agenda forward. Let's talk, let's start with the question of authority. So I'm going to give you three, three questions that you have to ask and answer and understand if you're going to debate these issues. The first is, what is your source of authority? Really important question to understand. Secular humanism versus the Bible. What's the difference in the way they, they respond to that question? What is your source of authority? In other words, who authorizes your choices? Who authorizes your choices? You need to understand that we have a different answer to that question than the secular humanist does, but you need to understand how they understand this in order so you can respond and and to debate. So let's talk about the dominant secular humanistic answer to the question, what is your source of authority? 
How does the average Canadian, the secular humanist, answer the question, what is your source of authority? Are you paying attention to that? Well, they would say, well, man, or people kind, and the social order as a whole is its own authority. That sounds kind of selfish, doesn't it? It does, so they're very ingeniously clean up the language. You know, you don't want, you don't, if a, if a secular humanist just says to you, I'm my own source of authority, you're like, that's kind of selfish. So they, they clean up the language. They make it much more philosophical, much more palatable. So instead, they refer to science or epistemology. Those are objective words, right? I mean, many of you that were raised in public schools, as was I, you know, we were sort of taught that science is this objective body of truth. No, it's not. Science is just our conclusions, it's, it's still rooted in a secular humanistic world and life view. I look at the world, I run some experiments, I take my limited knowledge, I take other people's research, assume that their conclusions are true, and I arrive at a conclusion, I call it science. And it's irrefutable. It's authoritative. Or philosophers talk about epistemology. Do you know what that word even means? Most people don't. So they, 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 they have words like this that are like, well, that's kind of an intimidating word. It just means the study of knowledge. Well, where does your knowledge come from? Well, it comes from us, from our educational systems, from our ability to think and observe and run experiments and tests and all that kind of thing. And what's fascinating about this is if you study the history of science, it's always changing, 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 changing. But if you just stop at any point in time, 2021, 1991, 1962, at ever, whatever point in time, at that point in time, everybody thinks the science is set. It's absolutely true. It, it never, like we've, we finally, our generation finally understands truth. And then six months later, the science changes again. And, and now we, we reconvince ourselves that it's true. Now, we're not opposed to science. We should study the world around us. Solomon did. But it is fluid. Science is fluid. We're not as smart as we think. I don't care how many PhDs you have. We're not as smart as we think. Now, within every body of authority or every claim to authority, there is a priesthood. So in Christianity... Of course, we know as Protestants, we believe in the priesthood of believers. But in Christianity, the Christian faith is represented by, generally by clergy. So pastors, bishops, whatever denomination you're in, the, the theologians, the, the doctors of the church. In every generation, in every religion, there are certain individuals that sort of are the spokesmen or spokeswomen or spokespeople of that movement or ideology. And that's, that's true of every religion. It's true of every philosophy. So whether you are, if, you know, if, you're, if you're a communist, who are some of the historic spokesmen of communism? You just tell me. Shout out a name or two. Okay, Lenin, Marx. These are the, these are the priests, Trudeau. These are the... <laughs> I love how I have an owl in the front row. These are the priests of the ideology, right? They don't call themselves that, but they're the priests of the ideology. So in secular humanism, science or humanistic epistemology is the, is the source of authority. 
So if you listen to the world even right now and what's going on in culture, who, who's the priesthood? Who's the, who functions as the priesthood of the, the current ideologies that are being foisted upon the church? The government, the state, the experts, the anonymous experts. We never really even know who they are. So say the experts, right? Now, as the experts pontificate, who delivers their message to culture? The media, right? The media are like the deacons of the secular humanistic epistemological priests of our culture. And so we have people running around, even in the current environment, and if they, if they actually just look at their human experience, their human experience is very different from what the media tells them we're experiencing. So the media breeds fear, appeals to the experts, tells you the world's falling apart. They're stacking bodies down at the hospital like cordwood. And then you talk to most people and they're like, well, I guess it's true, but I haven't actually experienced any of that. I haven't seen it. There's a problem, but it's, it's not... It's not on the level that the experts, but the experts, the experts tell, tell us that this is, this is the problem. Now, what we would say to that as a Christian church is that no matter what happens in culture, no matter what happens in culture, the state, no matter how hard it tries, does not have authority over the ministry and worship of the church. It just doesn't. So, for example, let's say we were in a pandemic where three-quarters of Windsor-Essex population was literally dead in the streets. Could that happen? I suppose. We still would not relinquish authority over the ministry and worship of the church to the state. Why? Because theologically, they don't have that authority. We would make our own wise decisions. And by the way, they'd be a lot wiser and safer than the decisions that the state would make for you. We would not be irresponsible. But what we're fighting here is an, uh, uh, an authority war. We're fighting it when it comes to the pandemic. We're fighting it when it comes to abortion. The state, the experts, people kind, says we have the authority to determine whether a child can live or die, whether churches can be open or closed. We have the authority over marriage and family, et cetera. So this is the secular worldview. This is very simple stuff. Now, in, in response to that, we have a biblical creational worldview. And if you want to do some more reading on this, you know, my good buddy Joe Boot has done a lot, a lot more research and, re, and studying on this. This is his kind of full-time job. Any of his materials good. If you want to do some historical research, you should read a, a Dutch theologian and politician by the name of Abraham Kuyper, who talked much about issues of authority in terms of the church and the state. And he, he was an interesting guy back sort of the, at the turn of the 1900s from the 1800s into the 1900s. He was a clergyman. He was a cleric, but he also was the prime minister of the Netherlands for, for a term. So he understood, you know, the, the, the opportunity to influence culture through politics and through the ministry of the church. One of the key verses we could point to when, when we ask the question, what is our view of authority? So where does our authority come from? And who, who ultimately is in charge of all of this stuff? Who, who is in charge of our body, our health, the education of our children, the church? Who ultimately is the king? Any, any, anybody want to hazard a guess? What does the Bible say? It says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 about Christ, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. How many things? All things. 
all things. So what, what is that inclusive of? Well, um, the first the verse before that answers that question. How expansive is Christ's authority? A lot of Christians think that Christ is just, at a very practical level, in charge of the church. Politics is something else. And education is something else. And medicine is something else. Each of them has their own priesthood and experts. We're, Christ is just, we just talk about Jesus in the church. There's some reasons for that. But it actually says in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, very expansive language, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So from a biblical perspective, Christ is king of all of life. He is king of parliament. He is king of the provincial legislature. He's king of the town hall. He's king of your marriage, king of your family. He's king of the church. And any Christian that relinquishes authority to the state, to the secularized priesthood, the experts, is not functioning out of a biblical worldview. Christ is Lord of all of these things. And in the old days, when when it was still Christendom, and Christ's authority was recognized more robustly in all the spheres of life and in the institutions of life, life was a little better for people. We were a little more sane, a little more rational. It's never been perfect. And so in this respect, we could say all of life is religious. All of life is religious, folks. All of life is religious. Whenever we or a secular humanist appeals to an authority, an expert, that's their God. That's their ultimate authority. All of life is religious. So as Christians, we reject a secular sacred dualism, which has been so prevalent in the church for the last several generations, where it says, no, what we do is sacred and what they do is secular. I have a sacred vocation. You have a secular vocation. I'm in ministry. You're not in ministry. We reject all of that language and all of those thoughts. We say all of life is sacred. All of life is sacred. Christ is Lord over all of life, over every sphere, over every aspect of life. He, God cannot, God can never be left out of the classroom. God can never be left out of the hospital or the school without being replaced by some other God. So there's no such thing as what? Spiritual neutrality. How often do we say this in our church? There's no such thing as spiritual neutrality. Say it to yourself. There's no such thing as spiritual neutrality. There's, there's no benevolent God apart from the true and living God. There is none. There's no such thing. In every sphere of life, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, you must appeal to a source of authority, folks, to justify your decisions. You must, knowingly or unknowingly, however fancy your language becomes, whether you call it Jesus Christ or the expert. Everyone appeals to a source of authority. And the failure of the Christian church over the last several generations, best as I can tell, one of the biggest failures of the Christian church, I should say, not the only failure, is this hunkering down, this holy huddle mindset, this secular sacred divide that has dominated the way we've done ministry and culture. 
The Bible says you cannot serve two masters. Can't serve two masters. You're going to serve a master. You're going to serve the state. That's called statism. You're going to serve a dictator. That's dictatorialism. You're going to serve Allah or Krishna or Jesus or some or yourself or the expert. Everybody has a source of authority. Think about this statement that's been flying around in culture. It just, I just want to give you this, this as an example. My body, my choice. How many of you have heard that? Okay, there's two different ways of using that, right? So the statement actually is, from a theological perspective, a truism. So from a Christian world and life view, if we were to analyze that, we would say, of course, the language isn't in Scripture, but I can sort of go back and think about the creation mandate. Okay, God made me in his image. I'm a creature, he's creator. I have a stewardship. I'm to have dominion over creation on his behalf, to rule the planet on his behalf, to have dominion over animal life, to, 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 to till the ground, to represent his purposes, and I'm an autonomous being. I'm not responsible for the sins of my forebears. I don't have to apologize for what my dad did, much less what my great, 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 great granddaddy did. I'm going to stand before God and give an account for the things done in my body, whether they be good or bad, for 2 Corinthians 5.10. So I'm an autonomous being, and I live my life in community, but ultimately I'm responsible for me. So from a creational stewardship perspective, that's a truism. But from a secular perspective, it indicates radical autonomy. The word autonomy means self-law. It's radical autonomy. And so it's, it's used to justify the slaughter of the unborn in the woman's womb. And it's, it's wrongly used in that regard, A, because it's, it's rooted in a, in a worldview of rebellion. I am a law unto myself. I'm an autonomous being not a steward, but I'm an autonomous being. And secondly, it's just logical nonsense because the body inside of you is not your body. It's a separate body, so you don't have a choice over it. But that's an example of where you can say the same thing, but you mean something different depending on whether you're a secular humanist or a biblical creationist. And this, these are the kind of things we need to call people out on. We need to continue to ask people, what is your source of authority? Why do you think you can end the life of a child in the womb. Who, who gives you that authority? Why, why do you think you have that authority? And meaningfully have that conversation with people and pin them to the wall, force them to answer the question. See, if we just say, don't have abortions, 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 stop having abortions, abortions are bad, abortions are evil, but we're not undermining their worldview, which says, but I have the authority my body, my choice, I can do what I want. I am an authority unto myself. And in fact, the experts of the world affirm my decision. You're never going to win. So we have to challenge the authority. Jeff Durbin had a podcast just recently, and he, he had a guy on. It was a very respectful conversation, and, the, and his, his uh, opponent said, you know, I, I don't have a problem with a woman aborting her child in the womb. And he kind of pressed him on that. But what about after the child's born? I, that's not a good idea. But why? He says, well, in the womb, they're dependent. Outside of the womb, they're not dependent. I said, yeah, they are. I mean, in the womb, they're being fed by an umbilical cord. Out of the womb, they're being fed by a breast. They're still receiving fluid from their mother. 
Just in one case, they're surrounded by water. In the other case, their lungs are full of air. But what's the difference the day before birth and the day after? Your food source. That's about it. You're either being fed by blood from your mother, nutrients being passed through the placenta, the umbilical cord, or you're being fed from your mother's breasts. And, and you see people start to kind of like stumble over their, their response because their worldview is broke. It's inconsistent. Their, their source of authority is being revealed to be a fraud. As we think about how to respond, a few things I think we need to do a little bit better at. Um, I've already mentioned one. We need to do a better job in confronting false authority. And instead of just pointing out the moral arguments, it's wicked, it's wicked, it's wicked. We need to challenge them in the area of authority. What is, what is your source of right and wrong? Simple question. How do you know what's right and wrong? And just keep pressing them on it to its illogical conclusion. What's your source of right and wrong? I'm not going to do this, but what would be wrong about me slashing your throat right now? What would be wrong about, why would that be wrong? Why is it okay in the womb, but not out of the womb? Let's say a mother has a child and the child's five days old. On, on what authority, on what basis, if she just doesn't like the child, you know, is the wrong color hair or it's the wrong gender or has some disability. Why, why can't she snuff out the life of that child afterwards? The child is completely dependent upon her. So brutally force people to ask the question and answer the question, what is your source of authority? We also have to um, uh, understand our source of authority. So I'm in, in, uh, in apologetics, which is kind of the art and science of defending the Christian faith. There's two streams of thought. There's rational evidentialism, which basically says, rationally, you can talk someone into being a Christian using rational evidences. And there's, there's room for some of that conversation. And there's also presuppositionalism, which is the camp I fall in. And presuppositionalism is the belief that actually when you start off with the presupposition, because everyone starts off with a presupposition, that there is a God, everything else is built off of that and makes sense based upon that presupposition. And we, we, we approach apologetics then from the presupposition that there's a God. We don't apologize to people that there's a God. We don't try to necessarily prove to people that there is a God. Why? Because you can't use creation, which is by nature temporal and non-God to prove that there is a God who was outside of creation. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. We, we start off with the presupposition that there is a God, and then we, we try to show people that a holistic world and life view only works when you start off with that presupposition. And then you also remind them that they have the same presupposition, it's just a different God with a different name. So when we, when we talk to people about the source of authority, we need to understand what our authority is. Who is our authority? It's God. The Bible starts off with that presupposition. In the beginning... And then it doesn't go on to a diatribe proving that God exists. It pre-assume, it presupposes that God exists, and then everything else is based off of that, right? God doesn't take a lot of time to try to prove to you that he exists because you're made in his image. You are, you are part of creation. You already know that. You're just denying it. So we start off with the presupposition that God exists. We live our lives based upon the presupposition that God exists. We live our lives under the authority of God, and that in and of itself is part of our witness to the world. 
So oftentimes when we've weighed in on the creation debate, we've tried to appeal mostly to the public heart. It's bad. Can't you see it? So look at the pictures. Look how gross this is. And we have the pictures of the chopped up children. Isn't this gross? And we try to appeal to the heart. We try to convince them using gross images or horror stories that uh, what they're doing is wrong. But again, the problem is they don't see it as wrong necessarily because they have not presupposed the existence of God. They see themselves as their own moral authority. So if in my mind I say, no, that's not wrong. That's no different than a rabbit that's been squished on the highway. Then they let themselves off the hook. So we need to make sure we are living in such a way that we are declaring the authority of God. This is why we fight for it in our church. This is why we fight for it in our families. This is why we fight for it in all spheres of life. God is king. God is king. God is king. By the way, as soon as you close your church because the state tells you to close your church, you've also lost the abortion debate. You realize that, right? You've lost the abortion debate. Why? Because you have said that the state has authority over Christ's bride. Right? So data aside, science aside, pandemic aside, if you surrender the authority over Christ's bride to the state, and they determine whether you can open or close, baptize, marry, or bury, whether you should be masked or unmasked, how far apart you should be, this may be good advice or bad advice. So give it to us as advice. But as soon as they say, no, this is the dictate, this is what you must do, there's no wiggle room for it, we're going to imprison your pastors if you don't, we've lost every other battle that we'll possibly fight in the present or the future. You just need to understand that. Now, one thing for us to consider as Christians is that we often are, are not particularly strategic enough. Um, I think there's some strategies we have not availed ourselves of that have uh, contributed to the demise of culture. So think about this for a moment. What if, what if in churches like ours, we actually taught our children that God is king over all of life and that they have a stewardship and whether they are a tradesman, a nurse, a lawyer, an engineer, an artist, that they need to live their lives from a s- sacred worldview and do everything at work and at home to the glory and honor of God and bring their worldview to bear on their employment. What if we did that? And we did that robustly and deliberately as we should. What would happen? Well, in 30 years, we would have Christians as judges in our courts, Christian lawyers, Christian nurses, Christian doctors who are actually influencing all these institutions and spheres of life, and we would see radical change. But what do we do instead? We raise our kids, we send them to public schools where they're being indoctrinated. Again, if you're a public school teacher here today, no offense to you because I know you're, you are a missionary in that system. But I don't think Christians have been particularly wise in putting their kids in that system. So teachers continue to teach in that system. Parents, get your kids out of the system. If that's not been clear to you by now, get your kids out of the system. Might cost you a salary or two, but you should do it. Because they will destroy your children. And what you'll do is you'll replicate the same kind of problems we see in culture today, whereby we have Christian people 
that are nurses, Christian people that are doctors, Christian people that are lawyers, but they don't actually live out their vocation as if they were Christian. They just worship on Sunday and they drop their kids off to youth group on Tuesday, but they don't even know how, even if they're wanting to, they don't even know how to live out a Christian worldview in those environments because they've never been taught. They've never been trained. I'm I'm becoming increasingly a long-term thinker. I think that if the church of Jesus Christ, even the few faithful churches in our province do a bang-up job in this area, that we could have a massive impact on the legal system, the political system, the medical system in 30 years if we start now. Train up our kids. Let's get them out of high school and into colleges, universities, with a robust Christian worldview. Let's get them into those, those areas of, of employment. And let's encourage them to exercise their influence in those areas, those different spheres and institutions of life. Will it be hard? Yes, it'll be hard. We will see change in our culture in 30 years. But if we just run and hide, or we just assume that youth group is enough, or if we don't talk about it robustly and meaningfully, we're just going to find ourselves spinning our wheels generation after generation. So let's think clearly about what our source of authority is. Secondly, we need to think about what our source of morality and law is. So in, in the secular humanistic mindset, there's basically three sources of law we're observing. The first is the state, statism. So this is the authority of the elite, the experts, the elected officials, those with special knowledge. Notice how in our culture we've created all these kind of pockets of expertise. So in the old days, if you wanted to build a house, you just bought some two by fours and built a house. If someone had a medical issue, you just, you went to their house and you fixed it. If someone needed counseling, you just go to someone who's wise and discerning and you get counsel. But what we've done is we've professionalized all of these areas of life. So now we have all these classifications. So I'm certified, I'm regulated, I'm authorized, I'm an expert. And we've created all these pockets of experts in the church, outside of the church. This guy's an expert in engineering, an expert in medicine, an expert in theology, an expert in sociology, and everyone else is dumb, right? Because you're not an expert. Do you have a diploma? Do you have certification? Who regulates you? This is the the, the trajectory of culture. Everybody is sort of an expert. We've compartmentalized knowledge to the point that the experts now pontificate over the non-experts. And to quote from the New Brunswick health minister would see, for example, people that don't want to take the shot as uneducated because she sees herself as the expert. She's the, the priestess of the medical system to the point that she actually made a declaration, which was later removed that to the effect of it wouldn't be a bad idea for the CAS to take people's children away if they don't get the shot because that's considered child abuse. Now just think about, think about her mindset, Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer so-and-so. She sees herself as an expert in medicine, knows everything there is to know about medicine. And then on top of that, she sees herself as having authority over your children. Now, those of you that are church people would be like, yeah, I'm reacting to that right now. I don't agree with that. But folks, that's the dominant worldview. 
Because we've said, hey, you educate our children. We've done that for 40, 50 years. Public education, public education. Oh, could, will you please certify us? Will you please certify us as physicians or teachers or nurses or whatever it might be, truck drivers? Everybody has to be certified. We all look to the state to authorize, to approve us, even in the church. You know, can you approve me? Can you please give me a marriage license? Can I be your officiant? This is the mindset that has dominated our culture for so long. And people just buy right into it because well, if we look at history, free people eventually return to slavery because they think it's a lot easy, easier than they eventually regret it and see it for the tyranny that it is. And then, then they have to fight and shed their blood to get it back. That's statism. Then we have special interest groups. They're also quite authoritative, aren't they? So special interest groups, whether it's the pride movement, the indigenous rights movement, the BLM movement, each of these movements has a little bit of truth, a little bit of righteousness in them. You know, there have been abuses against people that are gay. There have been abuses, terrible abuses against indigenous people. I've spoken publicly about that in podcasts, etc. There have been abuses against black people in our, you know, not so long ago in our, uh, in Western culture. So there's, there have been issues, but then they, they create a whole narrative around this. They draw upon moral language and they, they present themselves as the, the messiahs and saviors of culture. They present their agenda and they assume that you're going to hitch your wagon to their, their agenda and follow their lead. The special interest groups have a, an, a tremendous impact on culture today, on politics. I mean, think about the pride movement just as an example. I mean, these people are geniuses. They're, they're, they're marketing geniuses because they're organized. They're spending money on it. They have pride month. And now they're pushing for pride history month in the fall. So they might get two months out of the year. Jesus gets a week. It's an, it's an incredible marketing technique. So now we have companies changing their logo to the pride colors a certain time. Like we could learn something from that. We could learn, there's more Christians in Canada. You do realize that there's more Christians than there are people of the LGBTQ persuasion. But what do we do? We just hide in our churches with false humility, trying to love people by saying nothing, trying to be passive because Jesus had turned the other cheek. And we do nothing. And culture is beholden to a lot of these special interest groups, which becomes a source of moral authority. We even have Christians that think <laughs> that these groups are actually about what they say they're about. So if you think the BLM movement is about black rights, you've been lied to. I'm very interested in equality between people of different skin tones, far, far, far more than they are. That's not what those movements are about. You can even study their documentation to prove that point. And then the third source, dominant source of authority and culture is self. Whatever I want, radical autonomy. It's the sin of Eden. Remember in Genesis 3.5, it says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. This is a lie of Satan, and you'll be like God. Now, we know that part, but you know what it says after that? Knowing good and evil. In other words, you will become your own moral authority. When you get rid of God, you'll become your own moral, moral authority. You will know good from evil, right from wrong. You'll be able to determine that. 
You become your own moral compass. So we have in the dominant secular humanistic worldview, statism, special interest groups, and self, which become sources of morality. How about in the scriptures? How about a biblical creational worldview, meaning a worldview that's grounded in creation order, creational design? Well, we have God's word. We have God's law. In the modern church, people are very, very concerned whenever we talk about God's law. What do they think of? What were we taught growing up in many of our evangelical churches? We're not about law, we're about grace. This is the age of grace. It used to be about law. Really? I think God was pretty gracious to Abraham and Joseph and Daniel and Judah and Israel. But we create this law-grace divide. And then we were taught, now the Old Testament, that's old. We even call it the Old Testament. It sounds old, it sounds obsolete. And we think of law, we think law, law is obsolete. Law is anti-grace. Law is works-oriented. No, we're about, we're Protestants. Justification by grace through faith alone. We're about grace. We're not about law. So we toss out law. And, but at the same time, we look around us. Every nation is governed by law. Everybody's appealing to some moral source. They just, if we don't preach God's law, they just make up their own. Now, when I talk about God's law, I'm not talking about the Levitical laws or the ceremonial laws. I'm talking about the whole of God's word. And we are called to preach God's law into the world. We're, we're called to preach God's creational norms, biblical norms into the world. God's laws are the creational norms that define reality. For example, the reality that there's a creator and you're a creature. That's part of reality. You can deny it. You can reject it. You can pretend that's not true, but that's part of God's law. It, God defines roles and sources of authority. So he tells me as a pastor, this is your source of authority. It's not, it's not whatever you want. This is your circle, Aaron. This is your source of authority. I don't have authority over every aspect of your life, but I do have some. I'm a husband. This is my authority over my wife. I don't have absolute authority over my wife, but I have some. I'm a father. I have some authority over my children. If I was the prime minister, I'd have a sphere of authority. If I was a doctor, I'd have a sphere of authority. If I was a lawyer, I'd have a sphere of authority. That's my sphere of authority. God's law determines what the boundaries are to authority. If you don't have God's law, everyone just kind of wants their circle to be larger and larger, right? So if, if you don't understand what your sphere of authority is and you're a husband, you become the abusive, tyrannical husband because human nature is I want more authority. So I'm going to exercise authority comprehensively over my wife. Or if you're in politics, if you don't have God's law to hem in and define your authority, you're just like, well, my authority is whatever I want it to be. I'm just going to keep expanding my authority. God's law determines morality. It tells us this is right, this is wrong. God's law defines our purpose the mission of God is the glory of God. We are creatures. We are stewards. Therefore, our lives are to be lived for his glory and honor. But instead of preaching these things, we're like, oh, let's not talk about this because we don't want the world to think that we're trying to moralize them. We don't want the world to think that salvation isn't by grace through faith alone. We don't want the world to think that we're just being self-righteous. So what have we done for many generations? We don't preach God's law into culture. We don't confront the lies. And so man just creates his own law. And now we, we've been pushed into a corner because we have a misguided concern 
about being works-oriented, and we've left humanity to determine a law unto itself. Now, there's, there's some laws in God's word that relate specifically to abortion. For example, God oversees every conception. Psalm 139 says, For you form my inmost parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So that means no matter what the means of conception is, even if it's rape, that's an emotional issue. That, that's a hard one to deal with as a pastor. But if God is the one who knits together every child in the, room, the womb, then we don't abort children who are victims of rape because that is God's handiwork. The act is not justified, but the child belongs to God. He knitted us together in our mother's womb. Well, that law affects the way we respond to rape victims who've become impregnated. The law of God tells us that we're made in the image and likeness of God, Genesis 1.27. That affects our view of human value. Yesterday, I shot a rabbit. Are you morally repulsed by that? You shouldn't be. But if I said to you yesterday, I shot a human, then you should be morally repulsed by that, unless, of course, they're attacking me and I'm exercising self-defense. Why? Why is shooting a rabbit morally acceptable and shooting a human not? Because we're made in the image and likeness of God. But if your worldview doesn't have that, then... What's the difference, really? What's the difference between shooting a rabbit or a human? So we need to make sure we're preaching and teaching God's law into culture and helping our children and our world to be held accountable to it. Final question is, where will we find redemption? Secular ideologies look for salvation. They look for it in progressivism, where the belief that man is increasingly enlightened and flawless. We hear our prime minister talking about himself as a progressive. I'm a progressive. The word sounds like enlightened. He has more knowledge than you. And apparently, if you follow progressivism, the world becomes more enlightened and less imperfect. Is that working? Are we, are we fighting less wars? Is there, are there less famines? No. Is there less injustice than there was a thousand years ago? No. We still haven't fixed the world's problems because without God's law and God's word, we will not. Secularism says there's redemption in evolution. So we're just merely material. So redemption is in the here and now. Live your life to the max. You were born, you'll die. Live your life to the max. That's all that matters. Hedonism is another secular response. Hedonism is the pleasure-seeking life. Just live for pleasure. Man, if it feels good, do it. That's the mantra of the hedonist. If it feels good, do it. Scientism, our observations of the physical world are supreme. Look to these things. Science will fix our problems. You know, if we can just get more shots in the arm or more scientific innovations. So let's say science does come up with some medical means of stopping this virus cold in its tracks. Are we home free? No, there'll be another one. Or you'll go get hit by a car or whatever it might be, die of cancer. We can't stop the reality of death and we can't live our lives in fear of it. From a biblical creational perspective, God is the source, the fountainhead of redemption. In creation, we look to creation. The, the, the Genesis record points us to creation. Look around you. This world is created by God. The skies declare the handiwork of God. In the incarnation, we find redemption in Christ and his atoning work. 
in inscripturation and God's law and God's word, all the questions of life are answered comprehensively. We have a comprehensive worldview to live our lives out of, to make our decisions based upon. And these bless us and encourage us. So these are the things we need to be talking about, folks. We need to be teaching to our children. We need a fuller gospel than Jesus died for your sins. You need to profess faith in him and you're going to go to heaven. We need a, that's not the, the whole of the gospel. That's part of the gospel. That's core to the gospel. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the declaration of Christ's lordship over all of creation. It is the proclamation of his whole counsel, all of his laws, all of his word. It's the call to repent and surrender to his lordship now in anticipation that one day we will all, willingly or unwillingly, fully surrender to him for all of eternity, either in heaven or hell. So hopefully this has stimulated some thoughts in your mind and in your heart. Um, again, it's very basic, just sort of an introduction. But I want to get you thinking about worldviews and how you can challenge and undermine lies in culture that people promulgate, lies about who they are, how they got here, what's true, what's false, who's in charge, who's my authority, how can I find salvation? Fight these lies relentlessly. You're not going to win in a week. You know that, right? It's not like you're going to come up with that one tweet that fixes the world, that one sermon. You're not going to win in a week. But you continue to fight truth with error. We got here by lies. We get up by truth. And in all of that, we trust in the sovereign work of God to go even above and beyond our abilities to do great things for his honor. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. As Aaron mentioned, worldview plays such an important role when we are addressing topics like abortion. And so we would recommend that you check out the Ezra Institute for Cultural Reformation. They have a podcast also on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network that deals with worldview often. And uh, Pastor Aaron and Dr. Joe Boot are very good friends. And so this would be a great resource for you. Also a reminder that you can hear the, this podcast on CJXC Radio, Canada's constant Christian companion at 11 a.m. on Tuesdays and rebroadcast 11 p.m. Thursdays. Make sure to tune in next week for another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.